I got, I have nothing that fits after that. <laughs> it's like all downhill. There's, there's nowhere to go. <laughs> uh, well, for you that are here for the first time, uh, we're really glad you're here and hope that this affects you in such a way that this becomes a habit for literally the rest of your life. For you that are watching online, as much as we wish you were in here, if you can't be in here today live, we're glad that you're online. And for you that are watching in other states, hope you'll tell another friend and uh, have more people as well. Well, we've been in a series called Journey to Destiny, and uh, I want to start by introducing the whole message today a little bit differently. There's a lady, her name is Mary McLaurin, and she has a condition called Developmental Topographical Disorientation. Now, uh, you can see people who have this condition basically get lost every day in the most familiar surroundings. Uh, Let me just tell you, she tells a story on herself how severe this is. She was asked by a friend to dog sit at her house, and so she was staying there, and she decided it's time to take the dog for a walk, but she forgot to write down the address of the house. And so as she took the dog for a walk, She got completely lost, and she said that to show how lost she was, it was as though you were dropped down into the midst of a foreign country. She can't remember. In other words, if she sees her own home street today, she can't remember the next day. She just always has to start fresh again. Now, I I have a little bit of this. I have a way of getting lost when others don't, but I don't have it quite that bad. But she goes on to say some other interesting things. Those of us struggling with this disorder are often left with feelings of anxiety, depression, isolation, and self-doubt. Now, think about that for a minute. And if you notice, I switched a word out. Uh, Instead of developmental topographical disorder, developmental spiritual or disorientation. And this is the condition that many of you that are familiar with um, this place hear me say an awful lot of times. Most of the people that you will ever meet, most of the people you, you touch base with on a regular, regular basis in your life, uh, they're intelligent people, they're attractive people, they're successful, they're nice, they're warm, but chances are they don't know who they are, they don't know why they're here, they don't know where they're going, they don't know how to live, they don't know how they're designed, they certainly don't know what's happening in the world or why it's happening, and they don't know what the future holds. They are just like this, spiritually disoriented. Now, this entire series is about getting spiritually oriented. And the journey to destiny, we said in the very first message, is it's not some secret destiny. Here's the truth. I'll repeat it again this week. You have a God-given destiny. I have a God-given destiny. It is the same, and this is the part you might be a little fuzzy on, It is the same for all of us on one level. It is your destiny in this life as you go through all of its experiences to be constantly developing to become um, a more Christ-like version of yourself, your true self, but ever-growing, ever-developing to become more and more like Christ. This all starts when we return to Christ our Creator in trust and become His follower. If we don't return to Him in trust and become His follower, we can't possibly start to develop to become the Christ-like human being that God created us to be, nor do the things, the unique things. Now, this is the part that's going to be different for all of us. So it's all the same that we're to become Christ-like, our unique self, but Christ-like. But then to do those unique things that God has equipped and called us to do, that's going to be different for each of us. But nevertheless, you have a divine destiny that includes being who you were meant to be and doing what you were meant to do. 
This series, we said, we're tracing the pathway of one particular man. His name is Moses. And we see in his life a lot of typical experiences that God takes all of us through in this developmental journey toward destiny. So that being the background, let's go ahead and start uh, right into the book of Exodus. That's where we've been through this whole series. And if you don't mind turning the Bibles that are near you on page 75, and you'll be looking at Exodus chapter 14. And just a little review, you know, we've, we've seen Moses go from being this shepherd in Midian for 40 years, and uh, he's an 80-year-old man when God tells him that he cares deeply about the suffering of the people of Israel in Egypt, and that he wants to rescue them, and that he's calling upon Moses, this 80-year-old man, to be the rescuer. Uh, Moses tried to get out of the job. He tried every way he could, five different excuses, but God says, no, you're the guy, you go. And so now when we come to this portion of Scripture, ten different judgments God has unleashed on the gods and goddesses of Egypt to show that those gods, those goddesses of Egypt are fake, they're phony, they're non-existent, and that there's only one true creator, one true God. And so finally, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has gotten to the place where he's like, we can't take anymore, you can go. Now you have to understand, the Israelites were the, the major workforce for the Egyptians, there were probably three and a half million Israelites altogether. We know that when they numbered the Israelites, there were 600,000 males from 20 years old upward. We have that in the book of Numbers. So the whole economic base of Egypt and all the multiple building projects were dependent upon this Israelite workforce. So letting them go was a really, really big deal. But Pharaoh's kingdom was crumbling because of these judgments, the Ten Judgments. And if you don't know what they are, just, again, get the movie, The Ten Commandments, the 1959 version. It'll all be clear to you. <laughs> but uh, he finally lets them go. Now, if we backtrack a little bit, when the Lord first meets with Moses, the Lord tells Moses, he says, the king of Egypt is not going to let the people go. He says, you go and you tell him, let my people go. But, but he's not going to listen to you. It's going to call for multiple judgments because he's a hard guy. He's a tough guy. You'll see why that's important as we go on a bit. So let's start reading. And um, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really go to some maps this time. I told him the first service I was going to show him a couple of maps, but I, I just didn't do it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it for you guys. Chapter 14, verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites that they must turn and camp before Pi-Hahirath between Migdal and the sea. And you are to camp by the sea before Baal-Zephon opposite it. Now, I'm going to stop right there, and I'm really going to go to the maps to, get, to show you these are real places. If you look at the top where it says Land of Goshen, and you see that little orange line, that's where the Israelites started. So here's this mass of three and a half million people making their way down southward. And then if you come right to where it says Gulf of Aqaba, you'll see right there, there's Pi-Hahirath and Migdal and Baal, Zephon. So the Israelites, and you can see the point at the uh, Red Sea, Gulf of Aqaba, where they actually cross over. Here's one more picture of it from uh, up top. Here's the real Gulf of Aqaba, the real Red Sea, and the real place where the Israelites crossed over. And you can see there went then to Sinai, which was where they received the law from God and so forth. Okay, so we got some historical, archaeological basis, all this stuff. So let's go back to the text. Verse 3. So mind you, get, get the picture. The Israelites now are backed up against the Red Sea, and now things start to change. Verse 3. Pharaoh 
will think regarding the Israelites. They are wandering around confused in the land. The desert is closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will gain honor because of Pharaoh and because of all his army, the who the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So this is why, or so this is what they did. Now, I know some of you are stuck right there with, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So let's just take, let's get this over with. Let me explain what this means. Um, first of all, God is absolutely sacrificially loving. It says that from cover to cover in the Bible. It says that he wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, 4. It says that in 2 Peter 3, 9, he doesn't want anyone to perish, not anyone, but all to come to repentance. So God lovingly seeks to draw all people to himself. But the scripture is very honest it says that some people will never respond to God's love and God's truth. Scripture is very clear. It says that one-third of the angels have rebelled against God. They will remain in rebellion. There's nothing God can ever do to pull them back. Scripture is equally honest about humans. And it says that multiplied millions of us, evidently, 108 billion people ever lived and died on the planet. When Jesus was asked point blank, Lord, are there many that be saved? He said, no, there are few. Remember he told that thing about the path, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He says the broad and wide is the path that leads to destruction. And many are there that go on that. He says narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there are that travel on it. So here's the reality. There are some humans that even if God were to appeal to them each and every day of their life, they would still say, you know, all things considered, I just wish you'd leave me alone. I just want to live my life. I want to do things my way. Just leave me be. You probably know people like that. Now, here's the deal, though. We don't know. Human beings are mysterious. And sometimes a human being can appear that way for many, many years. And then all of a sudden, they change. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes they live their entire life. They just kind of say it in various ways. Hey, you do, you do your God thing. You do your Jesus thing. It's just not me. It's not who I am. Never will be. And so they are closed off to God. Now, we don't know who that is. And so our duty is to constantly be loving people, reaching out to them, sharing the truth about God and the truth about life with them. But God does know. He has something called foreknowledge. He knows who will never be open to him and who is open. Pharaoh is one of these guys that had no openness whatsoever to God. So when it says that God hardened his heart, here's what it means. Do you have some people in your life that you know if you say certain things to them, you're going to get a hostile response from them? You just need to touch on certain subjects, and you're going to get a hostile response from them. How many have people like that in your life? Okay? So here's how this could be used. If you, if you deliberately did this, you hit that tripwire deliberately, and you knew they were going to blow back at you hard. You're kind of hardening their hearts. You're, you're, it's already in them. The hostility is already there. You're just hitting the tripwire to bring it out. When it says God's hardening Pharaoh's heart, it's God putting the Israelites in this vulnerable position that evil cannot resist. Listen to me carefully. Evil is relentless in its pursuit of those that it can destroy. It's relentless in its pursuit of those who have forsaken it. The Israelites had forsaken the place of bondage and evil, and evil wanted to regain them. And so Pharaoh was not somebody that was doomed from the start when it says that God hardened his heart. It simply means that God kind of pushed him because he knew Pharaoh would push back hard. 
And then God would be able to display himself to the Egyptians. This was an emergency, merciful measure by God to let the Egyptians know that their gods and goddesses were all false, all fake, and that there was one true creator. So God's using Pharaoh's hardness of heart so that he can display the truth about himself and about life. You have to understand, when all this was happening, there was no Bible. There was no Christ. Uh, There was fragmentary knowledge about God at best. Okay, we all good with the hard, hard stuff, so you're not going to be thinking about it through the whole message. Okay, all right, here we go. Let's go on. Verse 5, it says, When it was reported to the king of Egypt that the people had fled, the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. Notice, this is Pharaoh just using his own free will. Turned against the people. And the king and his servants said, What in the world have we done? Remember, this is their workforce, their economic base. For we have released the people of Israel from serving us. Then he prepared his chariots and took his army with him. So now Pharaoh is, is in pursuit uh, of the Israelites. And let's drop down to verse 10. When Pharaoh got closer, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were, what is the word? Terrified. So here's a crisis. The Israelites are in the midst of a very serious crisis. The most powerful army of the day is approaching them, and they're backed up against the Red Sea. They have nowhere to run. The Israelites cried out to the Lord, which was good, but then look what they did next. And they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the desert? What in the world have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we can better serve the Egyptians because it's better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this desert. How quickly they forget. Think about this. Was their life so peachy keen in Egypt? They were being brutally oppressed They were having their male babies taken from them at birth and killed because the Egyptians were fearful of the Israelite uh, workforce turning upon them. They, They were being brutally worked to death, and this is how quickly they forget when they're afraid. They also forget that God had just brought 10 judgments on the Egyptians all the while keeping the Israelites completely safe. They had seen and witnessed this with their own eyes. So they had experienced the supernatural involvement of God in their behalf. But as soon as they get agitated and scared, they, they spill out and they attack Moses. In an earlier message I talked to you about, one of the things we have to be realistic about is those that you may seek to serve, those that you may give yourself to serve may not appreciate it to say the least and it may turn on you like this and attack you when you don't deserve it at all it's okay it's okay just keep loving them and just keep serving them so the israelites are in a crisis they're in terror they're screaming out to or are screaming at moses crying out to god let's pick up at verse 13 look at the different demeanor in moses moses said to the people Do not fear, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord that he will provide for you today. For the Egyptians that you see today, you will never, ever see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you can be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to do what? Move on, just like the song. Move on, get moving, move on. And as for you, lift up your staff 
and extend your hand toward the sea and divide it so that the Israelites may go through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And as for me, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will come after them. And I will be honored because of Pharaoh and his army and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I've gained my honor because of Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And we'll stop there. So again, you know the scene. The Israelites are backed up against the Red Sea. They are waiting to be slaughtered. Most likely what they expected was that the Egyptian army would kill a number of them and then just take the rest of them back, put them back to brutal work, probably harder than ever, and they had nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Now, again, they should have been a little more of the mind of Moses, but Moses wasn't always like this either. If you remember the very uh, first message, or the second message rather, when Moses first went to Pharaoh, even though God had told him that Pharaoh was not going to let the people go, as soon as he got his first rejection from Pharaoh, Moses himself got bitter and angry and hostile with God, and he was discouraged. And so he's a different man now though. Different man, why? Because he had gone through skirmish after skirmish after skirmish with Pharaoh, discouragement after discouragement, but also he had seen God come through with miracle after miracle. And so now he's calm and he's telling the people, just relax, stand firm. You know, God's going to fight for you. These Egyptians you see, you're not going to see them anymore. So the first thing we need to understand, and this is where it gets personal, surviving a crisis. And mothers, by the way, uh, mothers are all experts at surviving crisis you can't be a mother and not go through crisis if you have children you are going to go through crisis with your kids of all different sizes shapes and forms and you have to figure out how to survive them but going forward here's some truth that will help each and every one of us because we're all going to experience crisis it's just a question of when first thing to remember follow follow god's guidance when you're in a crisis Okay, th- this is important because when we're in a crisis, we tend, to, we tend to panic. We tend to lash out. We tend to start thinking of all these different ways of escape. And some of the ways we want to escape are not always the right ways. They're not always the good way. They're not always the godly way. We think of things we might do. We might try. And, and that's not the wisest thing. The wisest thing is to say, wait a minute, I want to know what, what does God say? What would God have me to do in this specific situation? Remember, he's telling the Israelites to do something that seems pretty counterintuitive. He's saying, you know, you're going to walk through the middle of the sea. That looked like a pretty impossible situation, but we know that that's ultimately how it worked. But for you and I today, we don't have to wait for a sign, or we don't have to wait for Moses to hold his staff over the sea. We have this book. God has progressively revealed himself through history. It's culminated. We have it in our possession And you and I, if we will fill our hearts and our minds with understanding of God's word, we will understand God's ways. And whenever we are in a crisis, we will have at our fingertips his guidance. We will know, okay, this is what God says is the correct way to go forward in this situation. And that's really a very, very important thing to have because when you're in that panic stage and you're thinking of worst-case scenarios and you're, you know, you're, you're having those battles within your mind, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? This is going to ruin my life. I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to be bankrupted. I'm never going to be the same again. I don't know how I'll survive this. When, when we're going through all those levels of anxiety to have this truth, this body of truth that, that speaks us down off the ledge and says, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. What does God say I should do in this situation what's my next step what would God guide me to do 
Let me share some scripture with you that shows you how much we can trust in God's guidance when we are in a crisis and we need to tuck this away. Psalm 32, 8, David says this. He says, the Lord says, I will do what? Guide you. Here's his promise. I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. Not the second best, not the third. I will guide you along the best pathway. When you're in a crisis, we need to have this tucked away. God promises us this. He goes on to say this. I will advise you and watch over you. You're not alone. We're not alone when we're in a crisis. God's looking over us. He was looking over the Israelites, and he was guiding them. He was telling them what to do next. Here's another. Psalm 48, 14. David again, he says, this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our what? Our God. How long? To the very end. You see, I'm going to need guidance, and you're going to need guidance to the very end of our life. We are finite creatures. Finite creatures don't have enough knowledge to function in everyday life. God is infinite, and so he promises to guide us, to teach us, to advise us right to the end of our lives. We're always going to be on a developmental journey with God. Truth be told, even in eternity, because God is infinite and we are finite, we will ever be learning, and that will be one of the thrills in eternity is to ever be learning from God. Here's another. In the book of Isaiah... Chapter 48, verse 17, it says, This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who does what? Teaches you what is what? Good for you. God doesn't just make things up arbitrarily to assert his control. He teaches us what is actually good for us. He knows what is good. He wants what is good. I don't always know what's good for me. I do stupid things. God knows what's good for me, and that's what he teaches me. I'm the Lord your God who teaches you what is good for you and leads you along the paths you should what? When you're in a crisis, you've got to have this tucked away. I know my God will teach me. I know he will lead me. I know he will guide me along the path that I should go to. There's a guy named Eric Weinmeier, and uh, back in 2001, May 25th, 2001, uh, he climbed to the top of Mount Everest. Now, there's been a lot of people that have done so, but um, up to 2001, from 1953 to 2001, there was 165 people that tried it that died, and still to this day, about 90% of the people that try to climb Everest do not make it. 90%, 9 out of 10 that try, don't make it. Now, what's interesting is this guy has not only climbed Everest, but since then, he has climbed the highest peaks on every continent in the world. Now, here's why it's equally or doubly interesting. He's blind. He's absolutely blind. He says, goes on to say this. When we take a perilous journey, listening well can make all the difference. Why would he say that? Well, when he climbs, he has to be accompanied. Uh, I've, I've seen some of his videos, and it's just shocking the things that he does without being able to see. But he still has to be accompanied, and people are speaking to him, and they're guiding him. He's feeling along with his hands, but he's also listening very carefully, and he has to trust the guidance that he receives. And he's risking his life on this guidance that he receives. When you and I are in a crisis, everything in us starts to just run panicky, and all these ideas fly through our head, and we're thinking of all these different scenarios, escape scenarios, coping scenarios, and we literally have to just speak ourselves down off the ledge, talk ourselves down off the ledge, and say, no, I need to find out what does God say is right for me to do in this situation. Not maybe every step, but what's the first step? 
What does he say to the Israelites? Just keep moving. Just keep moving. They were heading in the direction that God wanted them to go. And he says, just keep moving. But there's a Red Sea here. Just don't, don't worry. Moses will take care of that. You just keep moving. When we're in the crisis, it's important to know God's faithful and he will guide us through it. I want to share with you uh, four what I consider uh, very important principles about crisis that we might not uh, have at the tip of our minds when we're in one, and maybe this will help in the future to, uh, to have this at your fingertips. Number one, crisis can occur in the center of God's will. The Israelites were doing exactly what God wanted them to do. They were in the center of his will. He wanted them to leave Egypt and head into the promised land. They were on a journey to destiny, to the promised land. They were going exactly where God wanted them to go. But still this crisis happened. You need to understand, I need to remember that I can be right in the center of God's will. I can be doing everything that he wants me to do. I can be pleasing in his eyes. I can literally be so pleasing in his eyes that, that God's got all the angels looking there from heaven and they're saying, look at that girl, man. She's amazing. Look at her. Or look at that guy. You could be the, the hero of heaven and still have a very serious crisis. You have to let this sink in because we, we start to think all these kinds of thoughts. When we're in a crisis, we think like, oh, no, oh, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Don't you love me? Why, why? You could change this. You could do something. Or, or we start thinking thoughts like, oh, man, are you mad at me, God? Are you punishing me? Is this for something I did in my past? Is this for some sin that, that I don't know about that I haven't confessed? Or we start thinking, oh, man, maybe, maybe you've abandoned me altogether. Maybe you don't really care about me. We start getting angry at God like the Israelites got angry at Moses. Sometimes we get angry at God. But we get all disoriented because we don't understand this principle. Listen to me carefully. When you walk through this life on your journey to destiny to become the Christ-like version of yourself and to do the Christ-like deeds that God's equipped you to do, when you are in the center of his will, you are going to have crisis. Okay? Don't let that disorient you. It's normal. Number two. Crisis awakens us to our need for divine rescue. You see, the thing about crisis is, is it awakens us to reality. On times in our life where everything is going smoothly, <laughs> I feel pretty darn invulnerable. You know, I, I, just, I just feel equipped to handle anything. You know, I feel good. But that's not reality. Reality is I'm one brainwave or one heartbeat away from death. I can't control any of those things. I can't control hardly anything in my environment. I can't control a car coming across the the center of the lane and hitting me head on. I don't have very much control at all. The truth about me is that I'm a very fragile, vulnerable, needy creature. And that's the truth about you too. And that's the truth about every single human being. Every human being is constantly dependent upon the loving care and provision of our creator. We just don't think about it because he doesn't always get up in our face and say, hey, 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 that last breath you had, you, you know, you owe that to me. I can take it away just as quick as I gave it to you. you know? So these crises awaken us to reality. The truth is human beings are dependent upon God all the time. We just don't know it. 
The other thing that these crises do for us that we need to have done for us is they awaken us to the horrific state of reality right now. I mean, the reason the Israelites are being chased by a pharaoh is simply because he had the power to chase them down and enslave them. We live in a world where the Pandora's box of evil has been opened. And because evil is unleashed on this planet horrific things happen every single day all over our planet crimes get committed murders happen wars break out people are cheated people are slandered people's reputations are ruined horrible things happen all the time when our life is going smooth we can kind of block that out and it doesn't even bother us here's the terrible truth we get so doggone used to it and we don't even think much of it until it hits us or one of our loved ones but crisis awakens us to the fact that, man, there's something wrong in life. Life should not be this hard. You shouldn't have to have evil pursuing you relentlessly. You shouldn't have to be in danger. You shouldn't have to be afraid. Life shouldn't be so hard. Crisis awakens us that we need the kingdom of God on this earth. We need the kingdom of God to come in His will to be done on this earth as in heaven. It starts to clarify our spiritual vision and sensitizes us to the abnormal state of things so that we don't get too at rest in the circumstances we have. Number three, crisis offers opportunities to experience the trustworthiness of God. The Israelites probably hated the feelings when they looked up and they saw the Egyptian army pursuing them, knowing the brutality that was coming. That feeling, that feeling of helplessness, that feeling of terror, that feeling of being in a situation that you think is going to ruin you, destroy you, take from you something that's precious to you, take from you something that you've worked so hard for, whatever it might be. It is a horrific feeling when you're just waiting for the collision to come and you're helpless and you can't do anything about it. But the Israelites survived this. God does open the Red Sea, just like the Scripture said. They walk through it. God closes the Red Sea on the Egyptians' army. So the very experience that they hated, that terror, that feeling of vulnerability and helplessness, turned out to be the greatest experience of their life. You know, those Israelites, man, they're, they're 50 years later sitting down with their kids and their grandkids. Let me tell you the story about the time we were backed up against the Red Sea and God opened it up and we walked through it and then he closed it up on Egypt. We all want the miracle. Listen to me carefully. We all want the miracle. We all want the miracle story. We all want the miracle memory of God's great intervention in our life. But we don't want to be backed up against the Red Sea and feel the terror and the horror of helplessness in the midst of a crisis. But sometimes you can't have the one without the other. No crisis, no intervention, no miracle. Crisis give us opportunities to experience the trustworthiness of God. I'm going to tell you something. I could not count the number of crises. Could way, way, way lost track of counting the number of crises that I have been through, both small and great. And every time God brings me through these, and I know that some of you could tell the same story again and again. And it's really brought me to the place now in my life where, when I am in a crisis, it's, you know, I'm human. I'll still get the same degree of tension and anxiety to some degree. Not not a whole lot, to be honest with you, because I just know. I know I'm going to experience the trustworthiness of God. Until God is finished with me on this planet, until my mission is done, I'm pretty much indestructible, and so are you. 
Now, I'm not saying you can live like a fool, jump off a high you know, bridge or something like that. But as long as you're walking within the will of God, until your mission is through, he will always rescue you. He's trustworthy. I've experienced this stuff now for 46 years. And these crises give us yet another opportunity to experience, man, he's really there. He really cares. He comes through. When it looks utterly impossible, he somehow comes through. And here I am. I'm up again. Last one. Crisis can catalyze the use of divinely entrusted abilities. Remember what he says to Moses? You know, he says, Moses, get your staff, man. He says, take the staff and part the seas with it. Now, remember, the staff... The staff was something that Moses had used for 40 years as a shepherd, okay? He knew, he knew how to use it with sheep. But all of a sudden, when he gets there with God, if you remember back in, in Exodus chapter 4, when he was first meeting with God, and Moses was saying, you know, you're sending the wrong guy. I'm not a good speaker. I don't feel adequate. I don't want to do this. He all of a sudden, in chapter 4 of Exodus, verse 2, he says to Moses, he says, hey, hey, what, what, what's that in your hand? And Moses is like, it's my staff. He says, oh, throw it down. You remember? Remember the scene? He throws the staff down to the ground, and it becomes what? And then God says, pick it up. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Story ends right there with Randy. <laughs> but uh, he then tells Moses, he says, this is going to be a key instrument now for me, God, performing my work, getting my work done on earth through you. Now, li- listen carefully. Because the question that he asks Moses is so, it's so easy to miss it. He says, what's that in your hand? What was he saying? This was something that Moses had developed as a skill for 40 years. So what would that be to you? What's that in your hand? Are are you somebody that just has a way with people to to speak with them persuasively and warmly and comfort them? Are you somebody that just, you're, you're smiling and outgoing and you just make people feel welcome and loved? Are you somebody that's got experience in engineering? Are you somebody that's got experience in medical field? Are you somebody that's got experience with computers or musical instruments or, or sound? Or maybe you're an artist or, you know, you get where I'm going with this? Maybe you're just good at holding babies and you got like magical hands with babies and they just stop crying when they're in your your hands on what is in your hand what life learning what life learning do you have and you have one we all have one or more that god can take and partner with us and now it can be used in some way to further his kingdom interest on earth what is sometimes it's the crisis it was the crisis moses didn't know that staff could open the red sea you think he's going to do You think he's going to go, hey, watch this trick. You know, ocean. You know, he, no, he had no clue. It wasn't until the crisis that he saw this old skill, this, this staff that I had. God is willing to work with me with this old skill to further his kingdom. Some of you, 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 you need to become spiritual entrepreneurs. Not some of you, you, all of you. You need to become spiritual entrepreneurs. You've got life learnings, you've got experiences, you've got talents spiritual gifts too, that can be used to further God's purposes. might take a crisis to bring it out, but it's okay if that's what it takes. So, four important truths. First thing when you're in a crisis, follow God's guidance. Calm yourself down and say, what would God have me to do? Second thing, 
rely on God's faithfulness. Here's just some verses that will let this sink deeper into us. Isaiah 41.10, God says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Here's God saying, I'm going to do all these things for you. I promise you, I can, we can rely on God's faithfulness in a crisis. Here's another one. Isaiah 43, 1, it says, The Lord who created you says, Do not be afraid. I will what? Save, Save you. I have called you by name. You are mine. It goes on. When you pass through the deep waters, it doesn't say we won't go through deep waters and feel like we're going to be overwhelmed and drowned. When you pass through the deep waters, I will be with you. We're never alone in a crisis. Your what? Trouble. Troubles will not what? Overwhelm you. See, some of you right there, there's your whole message because... We tend sometimes to say things to ourselves that are nonsensical. We say, oh, man, this is it. I can't deal with it anymore. I can't take it. This is it. I have nothing left. I can't take anymore. My life is going to be ruined. Uh, my, my, my whole future is shot. I'll never be happy again. I'll never love again. I'll never be loved again. You know, we say all these different things to ourselves. Our troubles are going to overwhelm us. If you've put your trust in Christ and become his follower, here's God's promise to you. Your problems, your troubles will not overwhelm you. Is, is that a promise? Is that something to hang on to? Yes, it is. You need to remind yourself of that in a crisis. When you pass through the fire, you'll not be burned. The hard what? The hard trials. So you're going to have some hard trials in our developmental journey that come will not what? So we have stopped stop t- telling ourselves, this is going to destroy me. This is going to ruin me. I'll never be the same. Those are false, false, and false. They're just not true. Look at this one from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the Apostle Paul talking to followers of Christ in Corinth. He says, every test, that word in the original Greek, it's parasmos, it means test or trial. Every test or trial that you have experienced is the kind that normally comes to people. There's nothing unique, in other words, that we're going to go through. We all go through the same kinds of things. But God keeps his promise, and he will not allow you to be tested or tried beyond your power to what? Remain firm. So we can't tell ourselves, oh, I, I can't take anymore. We've got to say, no, God's going to give me the power that I need to remain firm. It goes on. At that time, or at the time that you are put to the test, he will give you the strength to endure it. You can endure it. I can endure it when I'm in a crisis and so provide you with a way out. These are truths we just need to internalize and have ready when we're in the crisis. I'm going to close with a story. It comes from uh, 2003. Most of us might faintly at least remember when the uh, Columbia space shuttle came crashing down in February 1st, 2003. Uh, the shuttle had seven crew members. It made it all the way back to coming into Earth's field. And then in the last five minutes before touchdown, uh, it literally disintegrated. I mean, it's really a horrible, horrible thing. Uh, just eight or ten minutes before, the crew did a video and they were all kidding each other and they were happy about finally getting back to earth and then minutes later you know gone just gone forever and uh, there's a real dark part of this thing too the the nasa crew on the ground they knew all along that this tile had fallen off this uh, insulation tile had fallen off when the rocket first took off and they didn't feel there was any point in saying anything because it was either going to be a problem or it was not and they didn't want to have the astronauts worried through the whole time. So they had no idea, no, no idea what was coming. 
So anyway, a year after this, a year after this crash, the people, the families of the astronauts were gathered again in Cape Canaveral, and there's this one particular lady. Her, her husband's name was Rick, Rick Husband. was actually his name, but he was his, her husband. He was the commander on the, uh, the shuttle, and Evelyn, his wife, um, she had two children. Matthew was seven, and the little girl, who was a big girl, actually she was 12. Um, a year later, she spoke these words. She said, even in the midst of intense suffering, God is faithful. Deep inside, now she's, talking, she's looking back now a year. So she's saying, when it first happened, and by the way, they, they were all watching on the viewers, when, and, and they saw their loved ones just, you know, literally disintegrating, or the, the vessel disintegrating. She said, deep inside, I knew God was going to walk me through this somehow. She already knew it deep inside. You need it deep inside. You need to know deep inside. You can follow God's guidance when you're in a crisis. You need to have it deep inside. You can rely on his faithfulness in a crisis. She said, I knew it because he had walked me through other crises earlier in my life. Our experiences with God strengthen us. They change us. They elevate our confidence. They equip us to face for whatever life should dish out to us in the future. In closing, let me say one word. Some of us in here, we're, we're in a whole different league. We're, we're having crisis after crisis after crisis in life because the truth be told, we are living contradictory to the laws of our nature, the laws of our creator. We have not returned to Christ our creator in trust. We are not his followers. We are following ourselves. And because we're following ourselves, we are experimenting with things in life, but we're often maybe finding ourselves in crisis. It's simply because we're living contrary to the laws of nature and our own being, knowingly or unknowingly. And for you, the message this morning is this. You can't receive this God's guidance or experience his faithfulness unless you'll return to him in trust and become his follower. Now, Christ says if we put our trust in him and become his follower, he forgives us all of our sins, he gives us everlasting life, and he'll then begin to help us become who God always meant us to become and do what he meant us to do. So for some of you, that's the crucial decision for you this morning. You are not a Christian. You are not a follower of Christ. And God wants to help you, but he can't. You have to open yourself to trust him and become his follower. For the rest of us, it's pretty simple. When we find ourselves in crisis, remember, follow God's guidance. Don't do it your way, my way. Do it his way. Second thing, Rely on his faithfulness. He will absolutely get you through this thing. And you will have a story that will bless others as a result. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for, once again, a reminder of your love, your faithfulness. That you give us clarity about the real world we live in and the real circumstances we should expect. And the promises we can hang on to. Thank you, our God, that you are ever faithful to rescue, deliver, and even strengthen we, your people, as a result. It's in Christ's name we thank you this morning. Amen.